Oh, amen. Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and meet me over in the book of Daniel. Like I've told you every week that we've done this series, the big idea for the entire book of Daniel is to teach believers how to live in Babylon without letting Babylon live in them. Hey, today I want to, oh, I want to tell you that it's going to be more of a teaching time than anything else because we're making a shift in the book of Daniel. Uh, we're, we're moving into a different section. If you didn't know this, it's about to get a little weird. The book of Daniel turns from all these really awesome stories like Clayton got to preach last week on Daniel and the lion's den. You have like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, the fiery furnace. Well, now it just gets in all this weird prophetic stuff. Uh, we're going to tackle that today. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel pretty much con- chronicle these three guys living with Daniel, and, and it's a parallel to our lives. It's significant because if you didn't know this, as a Christ follower, the way that the Bible describes your life is that this world is not your home. Heaven is your home. Check this out. And you're living here, according to the way the Bible uses it, as a resident alien, meaning like this. Your passport says heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven, but your residency is here. So the entire book of Daniel, matter of fact, the entire Bible is is meant to be a story about Jesus and then how his people are supposed to live in this in-between reality. So the very first six are the six chapters of Daniel. The first six are all written in Aramaic, which is, it's the common language of the people of Babylon. Daniel is writing for everybody to learn. He, he wants everybody to know that, that there's this thing going on he, because he wants you to understand how to live in the middle of the controversy. Because for many of us, we end up being like the Amish, if you will, that, that have just decided we're going to completely segregate ourselves from society. And that, that really does no good. Or we become like the progressive Christians of the day. They're just like, we're just going to become just like culture. Yeah, you know what happens when you do that? You just become culture. And you lose every bit of your ability to speak back into culture. Well, chapter 7 is a turning point of the book. And the rest of the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew. That's intentional. Daniel's no longer speaking to everybody. He's speaking to God's people. He's speaking to God's people. And he's doing that because he wants you to understand how the entire thing works. I want you to notice that in the first six chapters of Daniel, God speaks through dreams, but he doesn't speak in the same way. He speaks to a pagan king, and he uses Daniel to interpret the dreams. Oh, hey, I said this last service. Let me say this again. We're going to go over a lot of information. I manuscript my sermons. You don't have to capture all this. If you just email me, I'll send you my manuscript because it's going to be a, like, there's a ton going on here, all right? So in chapter 7, God still speaks through, uh, he speaks through dreams, except this time he's speaking directly to Daniel, and the angel Gabriel is the one who is interpreting. The reason for this is, if you are going to learn how to live, watch this, you're going to learn how to live in Babylon, this proverbial culture, you not only need to be prepared for the battle in front of you, you need to know how the whole thing ends. So the angel Gabriel, he comes to Daniel, and Daniel's terrified. He's terrified because if you look at biblical angels, they're not just like these beautiful looking things with wings on the back singing Chris Tomlin songs and a harp in heaven. No, they're terrifying beings. And Daniel's terrified. The encounter with the angel is there though because God wants Daniel to understand. He wants him to understand how the world is going to end so that he could have hope. Now, because we're about to get into all this weird stuff and some of you like this, I thought I'd I'd try to lower the, the bar a little bit by telling you the weirdest thing I've seen in Georgia. And it's Georgia, so you see weird stuff. One time I was driving to Chattanooga uh, up I-75, and I saw this lady. She might have been 80 years old in an old Ford Explorer, windows up, smoking a pipe. I'm like, welcome to Georgia. Anyway, that has nothing to do with any of this. I just thought I'd make you laugh for a second. 
All right, a couple of things you need to understand about prophecy as we jump in. 25% of the entire Bible is what we consider eschatological, big fancy word for end times related. That means that this stuff is really, really important and we should study it. But we should also be careful because if you don't study it correctly, you will end up like Harold Camping. Harold Camping wrote three books predicting the end of the world. Three because he got all three wrong. The biggest mystery to me is how he kept publishing and selling books. There's a lot of details, a lot of details. And most of the time, it's imagery or allegory. And what you have to know about allegory is you're not supposed to get hung up in the details. You got to see the forest through the trees. One of the worst ways to read the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel in the prophetic sections is verse by verse working through it. It was never meant to be read that way. You're not supposed to get caught up in the weeds. There's not something hidden behind every rock. On the flip side of that, it's bad not to see any details, right? You, you have to be able to function within the genre of what God is doing. There is a point, and your job is to find the point. But here's the warning. Here's the warning for all of us. When you read prophecy, you cannot go beyond what you know to be true about the prophecy. What, what, what we know is that the text tells us something that you need to understand specific about Jesus. But sometimes we misapply those things. Let me give you an example. Right, what we understand, and I'm going to show you this, is that this prophecy is going to talk about the Antichrist. We understand in this prophecy that the Antichrist is a world power. I'll show you that soon. What we don't know is who that world power is. What we do is we get ourselves into trouble when we start trying to interpret that. A lot of people thought it was Hitler and the Nazi regime. They were wrong. Some people today think it's Russia. They're wrong. Every four to eight years, half of you think it's the U.S. president. <laughs> right? Listen, don't go beyond what you, know, what you know to be true. Ultimately, here's what we know to be true. Jesus has come to redeem and destroy the Antichrist, and he is going to make all the sad things become untrue. That is the reality. If you want to thrive in Babylon, if you want to thrive in Babylon, you need to be trained for the battle in front of you, and you need to understand and be reminded that the war has been won by Jesus. You need to understand how the, the future goes in order to live in the present. By the way, I know that some of you are going to be pretty skeptical. You're going to walk into this with a little bit of a skeptical lens on, and that's okay. But I want you to know you can trust this stuff. I'm going to show you this in a little bit, but all prophecies have this theological bend of already, they've already happened, and not yet. They have a future thing that's going to happen to it. What you're going to see is that every single prophetic imagery that happens in the book of Daniel has already been fulfilled in some senses, historically. And I, I just want you to understand this too, is listen, I, I believe this word. I've always believed this word. Dan and I were talking about this because he just got back from Israel too. Now, after I've walked through these sites where all the skeptics have told you none of these things can be true and I've seen it with my own eyes, I just want you to know you can know this stuff is true. One of those things architects have always told you and historians that um, Jericho, the walls could have never fallen down. Like it, it seems preposterous that you'd walk around walls and they'd fall down until they found the ancient city of Jericho. And guess what they found? Crumbling walls all the way around the whole thing. Y'all, you can trust this word. All right, Daniel chapter 6. This is what, um, what Clayton preached on last week. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel's about 80 years old. It's the last scene that you see of him, Daniel's in the lion den. And then you go to Daniel chapter 7, and here's what I need you to understand is it's not chronological. You're actually going backward in time about 20 years. You're going to the first year of King Belshazzar's reign and the third year of King Belshazzar's reign in Daniel chapter 8. Okay, that's important because like I told you from Daniel chapter five, God seems to go silent for a long time. 
What's really neat about that is in God's silence, God was already preparing Daniel for the battle ahead. So he speaks to him. You ready? Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four, winged, and the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. In the Bible, the sea always represented the most uncertain things in life. Think about the disciples on the sea. It was the one thing they could not control, or the Red Sea, where Moses split it in half. Matter, maybe my favorite verse in the entire Bible was Revelation chapter 21, where John gets this vision of the new heavens and new earth. You remember what he says? He says, in the sea was no more. He's not telling you that there's not going to be oceans in heaven. He's telling you that all the uncertain things, all the uncontrollable forces that you feel like you can't control in this world, God can control, and one day he's going to fix them. Then you have the beasts. This is, this is important. Beasts in the Bible represent world powers. You see it all the way through. Daniel is saying that there are four of them, and they are the same four. If you go back to Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they're the same four over and over again. Verse 4. The first, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Weird stuff, right? Maybe the weirdest part is how much some of you love this. You're on the edge of your seat, ready to get going. The first beast, it obviously represented Babylon. We know that because of Daniel chapter 2. Remember the story of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar, he, he rose up to this great kingdom. He, it, Daniel will even tell you that he was so great that he killed whom he wanted to kill, and he let live whom he wanted to let live. He was the most powerful force. He ransacked Israel. He deported in 586 BC the nation of Israel into Babylon. And then he got so proud that God humbled him. The point here is that he became like an animal, walked around on the ground for seven years until God gave him a mind like a man again. And then he worshiped him and submitted to him. See, the idea here that Daniel wants you to know from the very beginning is that God is ultimately in control of the kingdoms of this world. I don't know about you guys, but it just seems like everything is a wreck right now. It seems like everything is out of control. What you should understand from the very onset is that God controls kings and kingdoms. Right? The, the communist regimes of this world that seem to have control over people, they will not last. The countries of this world that are persecuting Christians are eventually going to find their end, and God is ultimately going to do justice on this world, and his kingdom will come on earth as, as it is in heaven. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. This bear, this bear represents the Medo-Persian empire who conquered Babylon. The three ribs in his mouth, if you remember, were the three-legged stool of the kingdom that we talked about a couple weeks ago of Nabodonus and Belshazzar, and the third leg being Daniel after he interpreted the dream. The fact that one side of the bear was larger is the fact that the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians, were much bigger than the Medes, and they were eventually going to take over the empire. Verse 6, and after this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and its dominion was given to it. The third kingdom represents the kingdom of Greece. 
the kingdom of Greece, and the fact that the, the beast was uh, told to be a leopard talks about how swift, how swift he came into power and took over the world. Historians will tell you that this is exactly what happened with Alexander the Great at the age of 30. He conquered the known world. The speed at which this guy came into power and destroyed the world, historians say, might be the quickest and greatest world conqueror to ever live. One example of this is in 323 BC, Alexander the Great went into the Medo-Persian Empire with just 35,000 soldiers and went up against the Persians who had 100,000 soldiers. And on that day, they defeated them. The Persians lost 20,000 soldiers. And it's said by historians that Alexander the Great lost less than 100. The fact is that this prophecy says that there would be these four great beasts that would come up out of it. And we know that Alexander the Great died young and that he had four generals that took over the kingdom and they weakened them to the point in which they got conquered by somebody else. Verse 7, after this, I saw in a night's vision and behold, the fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. Again, another important detail. It devoured and broke in pieces and, stomp, and stomped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. This fourth beast is Rome. Up until this point in history, there was not a world that had, any, that had ever encountered anybody like Rome. That iron, that iron that was in its teeth represented the incredible strength of Rome, but not only that, if you look historically, Rome was the Iron Age. It was the coming out of the Stone Age into the Iron Age in which this more sustainable material that they would have would solidify their kingdom. Rome was terrifying, and they were exceedingly strong. They ruled the world with an iron fist, and they broke anyone, anyone that came in their way. They broke them to pieces. There, there were... <clears throat> And they were different from every other kingdom that had ever existed by power and by might. And those 10 horns, those 10 horns represented power. There's something in the Bible, every time you see horns, you see power. I mean, it's like this. Imagine animals with horns, a rhino or, or a bull. They, they have this powerful crushing ability, that, and that's what you see with them. They would do destruction. Now these horns, these horns, they represented nations that conquered and, and, and the nations that did massive destruction. By the way, every single detail so far in the book of Daniel 7 is all in Daniel chapter 2. Nothing here is new yet. But then verse 8 adds some new detail. Listen to what it says. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, important, like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. This is where it all gets weird. The prophecy is now going to turn to the Antichrist. Daniel says that this little one that raises up has eyes like a man, not a man, but like a man. The, the, best, the best illustration I could come up with is, have any of you guys ever watched like those docu-series on Netflix of like the murderers and it's like you look into their eyes, but they're not there. They're like soulless beings that you can look through. Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, my, my, my son, my, my five-year-old son, he was swinging out back being a boy, fell off. Um, passed out and had a concussion. And I remember like as I'm shaking him before we're about to go to the hospital, looking in his eyes and it was like his eyes were open, but he was not there. Anybody ever seen that before? That's the picture that you have. 
This Antichrist, he's, he, he's not really human. You see straight through him. He's a soulless being. Now, in the ESV, you notice that, that very last thing it says, he says it, he spoke great things. Well, other translations probably say it better. It's more, he spoke arrogantly or he spoke boastfully about God. See, what you'll begin to see as you move into chapter 8 and even into this world is that the Antichrist begins to speak openly and condemningly about God. You know, the first sign that the world's kingdoms are rebelling against God is when they stop being neutral about him and start being antagonistic towards him. Don't you start, aren't you seeing this? Aren't you seeing this? Like we live in a world that's no longer just like, ah, like neutral about God. No, we're anti-God and we're attacking anybody who is, a, who is for that. I want you to notice this too. As I said, world systems. According to the Bible in book of Daniel and Revelation, this antichrist is not going to be an individual. It's going to be a group of people, a world system that is going to come against the church, against Jesus, and against the powers of God that govern the world for good. Now, before I show you God's response to this, let me show you this. Jump over to chapter 8 with me, and I'm going to synthesize down the same exact dream that Daniel has three years later because it's the same dream from a different angle. And then I'm going to give you some applications for what all of this means. All right? Here it is. Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. Pick it up there. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across from the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram who had two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran to him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. Remember, I just told you that these horns represented power. Well, what you get here is you get a picture of this one-horned goat that should have been weak, should have been inconspicuous, and then it comes against this mighty powerful force and breaks it to pieces. Well, what is that? Well, the two horns of the Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander the Great, this young man who should not have had any power, comes against him and completely conquers the Medo-Persian Empire. How do I know that? Well, I'm a genius. Daniel tells you in verse 16 all of this stuff. I'm just synthesizing it down for you. All of it's in there. If you want to go read it later, look at verse 16. Verse 8, and then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Again, like I told you in chapter 7, Alexander the Great died at a young age, and his kingdom was divided up against four generals who weakened the empire. What's amazing about all of this is it was written 200 years before any of these events ever happened. And what we know is that historically speaking, everything that Daniel records in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 happened exactly like he said, every detail. Now, verses 9 through 14 have some incredible details in them that we are going to look at, but I want to come back to that. So I want you to skip over that and go to verse 15 with me. Here's what it says. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Eula, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. 
And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, this vision is for the time of the end. See what he's saying? He's like, hey, I'm going to fast forward beyond the 200 years and we're going to the end now. I want to show you that everything that you're about to see has its purpose in the end. And just so you don't think that I'm making this up, look at verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, right? And the goat is the king of Greece. And a great horn between his eyes is the first king. See, it's right there. All right, now Gabriel, he wraps up this vision by showing the Antichrist one more time. Here it is in verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and his own mind shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even raise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken. Y'all write that down but by no human hands. That's important. The vision of the evenings and the morning that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Now there was one more ruler historically that did absolute destruction on the nation of Israel. It was a guy by the name of Antichus IV. He was so arrogant that he gave himself the name Theos Antichus Epiphanes, which literally means God has made himself manifest in the world. The Jews actually had a name for him too, which I find fascinating. They called him Antichus Epiphanes, which means you're a madman. This little unknown ruler did absolute destruction on the nation of Israel. He, he set up in the Holy of Holies, in the middle of the temple that only the high priest could go, he set up an altar to his God, and then he sacrificed pigs on it and put the blood of the pigs on the Holy of Holies inside of the Jewish temple. Y'all, it doesn't get much worse than that. He killed over 80,000 Jews and 40,000 of them he enslaved. His, his destruction on Jerusalem and on the Jews during the intertestamental period, which if you don't know what that means, that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament is about 400 years. He did absolute destruction during that time. He was so evil that Daniel calls him the Antichrist, and he uses the term the abomination of desolation to, to call this guy Antichus. Y'all, Antichus stopped all sacrificial worship during the Maccabean revolt. And, and, and the worship was reestablished during that time, which if you didn't know this, this is how Hanukkah started. It was the, 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 the holiday of lights whenever they actually started worshiping again after the Maccabean revolt. Now, all of this matters because Jesus will eventually say in the gospels that the abomination of desolation wasn't talking about Antichus. It was talking about a future antichrist. See, he's, he wants you to see that this historical event is actually pointing to a greater reality. Historians will tell us that Antichus died, watch this, of a stomach bug. He died not by any human hands. 
It's in the same way that the prophet here, Daniel, will tell you that the real Antichrist is not going to die by any human hands, but God himself is going to put on flesh. He is going to come back riding on a white horse, and he is going to put evil to death once and for all. See, here's why all this is super important. Antichrist is a picture of the Antichrist who is going to die by the hands of God. Y'all, all of this is meant to give you hope. The history here is meant to show you that God knows exactly what he's doing so that you can actually trust his story. He's doing something good in your lives and you need to understand it. So back to verse nine. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great to the south, which would have been Egypt, to the east, which would have been Syria, and to the great land, which would have been Israel. Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And the host will be given over to it together with regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act, and it will prosper. Here's the point. Since the beginning of time, there's been this cosmic war being waged between whose kingdom will prevail. Y'all, and if you don't know, if you're sitting in the middle of it right now, doesn't it feel like truth is being thrown to the ground? And doesn't it feel like he's prospering? You need to understand that none of this is a surprise to God. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's got a greater purpose. See, if you are a Christ follower, I need you to embrace this. I need you to embrace the awkward tension of the reality of the Bible. If they hated Jesus, Jesus says, they're not going to like you either. Y'all, the world's powers aren't keen on God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, because if God's kingdom comes, that means their kingdom won't. There is a battle going on. And part of thriving in Babylon, this proverbial culture in which we live, is not knowing, it's knowing that you don't belong to this world. It's knowing that you belong to a better world and your citizenship is in heaven and one day God is going to come back and redeem you. But the other part of knowing this is you got to know how the story ends. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings and the transgression that makes desolate and giving over to the sanctuary and the host to trample underfoot It's a good question. How long is this going to happen, God? Watch this. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. You ready for this? Scholars will tell you that it was exactly 2,300 evenings after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that it was actually rebuilt. Now, this is incredible. Now, what I need you to understand is that in the Old Testament, It's still the same thing's true today. The temple was the meeting place of God with man. Contrary to popular belief, that has never changed. There must be a temple for you to meet with God. Why is that important? John chapter one, Jesus became the temple. He tells you that. He tabernacled among us. He literally became the meeting place of God with man. See, instead of God's presence being in a building, it's permanently now in a person. So you can come meet with God. It says the temple, the Holy of Holies were torn in two. You have access to God through the man of Jesus Christ because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
He put on flesh. He did what you and I could never do. And he did it so that we could meet with him and you can be in his presence forever. Why does all that matter? Now watch this. Well, 2,300 days later, the temple was rebuilt. And I'm not kidding. You can go back and look at this historically. Do you know what day it was rebuilt on? December 25th. Y'all, scholars believe that the angel Mary heard from the angel, I'm sorry, not the angel Mary, the person Mary heard from the angel Gabriel around the Passover that she would conceive and bear a child who would become the savior of the world. They believe that that happened around March 25th. Do the math. Nine months later. Nine months later, around December 25th, a lot of scholars believe that this person, Jesus, would become the temple, the ultimate temple, who would indwell a body, and he would do what you and I could never do. This 2,300 days was a physical representation, but it also pointed to something even greater. And if that's true, if that's true, how amazing and how incredible is this, if scholars are right, that the resurrection happened on the very same day that she conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Son of the world, who would take away the sins of the world. Y'all, what I want you to see is that God understands how all this is going to work out. None of it is a surprise to him. And even though the kingdoms of this world seem to be wreaking havoc on this world, they will find their end in Jesus. How do you thrive in Babylon? Well, you got to understand this. It might seem like we're losing the battle, but the war has already been won. God knows exactly what he is doing. And you got to trust him. Let me give you one example of this. Oh, I hear, I hear Christians say all the time, it seems like the church is dying. It seems like, like Christianity is failing. Now, did you know the largest city in the world right now is Tokyo, Japan? Do you know where sociologists say the largest city in the world is going to be in 2050? On the continent of Africa, particularly Lagos, Nigeria. It, it seems as if as the Western world right now is decreasing in population, the African continent is increasing drastically with a young population density that's growing. Why does that matter? Guess where the gospel is spreading fastest in the world right now? The continent of Africa. Don't you tell me that God doesn't have this whole thing worked out. You see, it's not that the church is failing. It might just be moving. And for a lot of us Westerners, God's taking the foolishness of the world to shame the wise because we look down upon people like that. And God's sitting there saying, don't look down upon them. They're my people. Because some of you, listen, some of you are going to be really, really disappointed when you get to heaven. You know why? Because heaven is going to be super colorful. God's not colorblind. He's colorful. You get that, right? He, he created beautiful brown skin and beautiful white skin and beautiful dark skin. And some of you got to get this picture out of your head that you worship Swedish Jesus. Like, dude was a Palestinian Jew from the Middle East. And, and God is doing a great work in the powers of this world. And you just got to understand that. Even though it seems like we're losing the battle, we're not. God knows exactly what he is doing. Let me say this. Some of you just need to learn to trust. Because the point that God wants you to understand is he is building his kingdom and his kingdom is much bigger than you could ever imagine. What you need to know about all biblical prophecy, by the way, and Jesus will show you this in the New Testament, is how it all works. This is going to help you, okay? Here's how it works. Theologically speaking, we use this terminology already, not yet. It already has happened, and it not yet has been fully applied. Let me give you a couple examples of this. When David wants to build God a house, what does he say? God says, you're not going to do it. You're going to have a son who will. Already, Solomon was that son. Not yet it was pointing to Jesus. 
In the book of Isaiah, whenever Isaiah says, to us a child is born, a son will be given. Well, I don't know if you know this, but there was actually historically a child that was born and a son that was given. And it was pointing to Jesus. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, what does he say? When he comes, he says, behold, the kingdom of God is here. Notice that. When Jesus came to earth, what does he do? He inaugurates the new kingdom. It is already here, guys. The battle is already won, but it's not yet fully realized. Every single prophecy is that way. See, this is super important because what you have to understand is that everything, every single thing in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 has already taken place, and yet there's a larger fulfillment that is going to happen. Now, now I want you to go back, okay? Back to chapter 7. Look at verse 9. I want to show it to you. All right, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flames. Its wheels were burning with fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand thousands stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Here, God's coming in the middle of history, the Ancient of Days, which is a beautiful name for God the Father because what that means is he has been from the beginning. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? He knows exactly what he's doing. He's been there. He knows what you're going through. He is going to do what he came to do. What I love about this is court is in session. Listen to me, listen to me. If God is going to judge the world, then you don't have to. Okay, if vengeance is his, it doesn't need to be yours. The reason why many of us take things into our own hands is because we don't actually believe this functionally. So you got to take care of it. But the reality is, is God doesn't call you to do that. He calls you to be a conduit of his grace. His hair is white as snow. He's gray with wisdom. It's like Elliot, my five-year-old, came up to me not long ago. He's like, Daddy, why is all your hair turning white? Your sisters, son, your sisters. <laughs> He's great with wisdom. Isn't that what's supposed to happen? God is pure with wisdom. He's, he's got pure wool, which means, which means that he's perfect in all of his ways. He knows exactly what he's doing. He, his, his throne is a fire. What you have to understand about this is the, the craziness of this world is going to burn up. It's going to burn up in the face of God. The courts of judgment are they're there to fix the brokenness of this world. I, I heard Bill Craig, uh, um, William Lane Craig, if you know, he's a great apologist. He said this the other day, and, and I've been chewing on this a lot because my life has been just crazy for the last year. He said, suffering was necessary if you actually look at it historically because it was the way that God made the optimal amount of people turn from their own self-reliance into him. And if you can see that properly, what you see is that it's even God's goodness that allows us to suffer. God knows exactly what he's doing. And all of God's judgment outside of the final judgment is his mercy. See, he's calling you to himself. The same way, the same way that God is going to sit in judgment, listen, you cannot love something if you don't hate the things that are destroying the people around you. I just want you to know, like, I hate with a passion the drugs that destroyed my mom's life. I hate with the passion the cancer that I've watched wreck some of y'all's life. I hate when my kids get sick. I hate 
whenever I watch some of you and I just see the train wreck coming as you're living for the things of this world and, and the affairs that happen and, and the prosperity that you receive that leaves you just empty at the end of it. I hate it. And God does too. See, because God loves, because God loves, he has to hate the things that are destroying this world and he's going to come back to wage war against them. So hang in there. That's the point. You got to hang in there. God is going to come and remedy all this stuff. Verse 11, and I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. Ah, oh, look at that. And its body destroyed, and it was given over to be burned with fire. And the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Y'all, don't you see how it's all going to end? One day, God is going to make all the sad things become untrue. One day he is going to destroy the rulers of this world that wage war against his people. Do you need hope in the present? Do you need hope? The way you do that is you look to the future. You, you look to what you know to be true and you allow that to interpret your situation right now. See, God is doing the same thing in your life. He's taking the things that this world means for evil and he wants to use them for good. Only if you allow him to do it. The same God who understands the big picture is the same God who understands you intimately. The same God who is going to take the details of this world to make his kingdom come is the same God that wants to take the details of your life to do the same exact thing. This is why all of this matter, because God cares. Listen, he doesn't just care about the big picture. He cares about you for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that no one should perish, but all have eternal life if you'll put your hope in him. He cares about the sick. He cares about the hurting. He's been moving history to accomplish his plan, and he wants to move your history too. So here's the point. If God can move redemptive history to accomplish his plan, he can move your circumstances as well. See, this big picture is there to show you that God is involved with every single detail. He cares about you, and you need to know that. He won't leave you, nor will he forsake you. And the answer to all of life's greatest questions is this, that Jesus is the temple to break all temples, that Jesus indwelled a body. God came off of his throne to live your perfect life, to do what you never could do, to suffer and die in your place. Like I told you at the beginning of this, this day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ himself would walk down the Mount of Olives, would take that path to Jerusalem where he would die in your place. And he did it. And as he's doing it, he says, Father, to Telestai, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is finished. Verse 13. And I saw in the night's vision, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came, watch this, one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed, one like the Son of Man. Do you realize that in the Gospels, the reason why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus and stone him when he called himself the Son of Man is because he was pointing back to Daniel 7 and 8. He was saying, I'm the one. I'm the one that the ancient of days that God the Father is going to give the kingdom over to. I'm the one who will have a kingdom that shall not pass away and shall never be destroyed. I'm the one that has dominion, and I'm the one who will fix this world, and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as Revelation 7 says, will stand around the throne worshiping me. That is Jesus. That is who you worship. 
Notice that Jesus' answers to all of life's questions is that he would be killed in our place. Y'all, the days are numbered for Babylon. Babylon, Babylon the great will fall. Jesus will establish his kingdom. There will be no more mourning nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away, he says. There will be a day where you will have complete joy and freedom in his presence. And here's the most beautiful part about all of it. God isn't just a God outside of history. He's a God that came into it. And he's a God that will rule from within. And we call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was the Messiah who would become the ultimate sacrifice. The entire thing is about him in order to make a way for God to make a home with us. If you didn't know, this book, this 66 books with 40 different authors is trying to tell you the story about how Genesis 1 and 2 can come back to reality. How God can be with his people and you can be with him living together in holiness forever and ever and ever. And Daniel 7 is a reminder. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. He will put on flesh and he will do it. Not only that, that temple that he indwelled, this person named Jesus, he says that I will put my spirit inside of you and I will tabernacle in you so that you can have me with you forever and ever and ever. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. You don't have to wait until you die to receive this. He wants you to understand that God's rescue plan is that he would come to live with you now. He would begin to build his kingdom through you and in you right now. That's what all this means. Friends, and if you're struggling like many of us are, here's what you need to understand. What does Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've done it for you. Y'all, every single detail in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, it's right. And because it's right and because Jesus is who he said that he is, listen, death is just a shadow of a greater thing. I love this quote by George Herbert. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made it a gardener, just tilling up the soil to make you pure and whole again. Do you need hope? It's found in Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the dead and gave that resurrection power because those 2,300 days were not only fulfilled in a actual temple, but fulfilled in the person of Jesus because he came on December 25th and lived your perfect life. He died at the Passover in order for God to pass over your sins and make a way for you to have a home with him. You can have God's presence now and you can have assurance of what's to come. Here's the last thing you need to understand. God's kingdom is an already and not yet kingdom too, which means that one day it will become ultimately fulfilled, but you don't have to wait for that day to experience it now. For too many of you Christ followers, you're living as an empty shell waiting for a resurrection, and God says, I gave you a resurrection the moment you came to faith. All you have to do is receive it and fan into flame the spirit of God that I've put inside of you. You have access to the most powerful force on the planet if you would just start living in it. More powerful than the kingdoms of this world, the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you more powerful than the struggles of your life. A, a, a certainty, a strong tower, a refuge for the weak. Like I told you two weeks ago, though, all of this is available in Jesus. But you have to choose. You have to choose whose kingdom you're going to live for. You're going to live for the kingdoms of this world that overpromise and underdeliver. Are you going to live? And by the way, they look like they're winning. That's what Daniel 7 says. Or will you 
Will you live for the kingdom that you know to be true? The kingdom of God. Will you let him indwell inside of you? That's my question, my friend. Will you let God reign in your life? Because in every human heart, there's a throne and a cross. If you sit on the throne, then Jesus goes to the cross. But if you put your life on the cross, he will sit on the throne of your life. And he will change you. He will give you joy. He will be a foundation that will change this world. Can you imagine if two billion Christ followers let the power of the Holy Spirit reside inside of them and they live for a better kingdom within this kingdom? Do you know what would happen? God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And they would collide together in a beautiful way. It's all true, my friends. It's there to give you confidence to live with certainty in the middle of the battle. Whose kingdom? Whose kingdom will you live for? Father, I pray that you would give us hope in the middle. You give us courage to keep going. Certainty in your word. God, that you would change this world from the inside out, starting in our worlds. Would you change us? Would you make us like you? Thank you, Jesus, that all this is true. Give us faith, even where we doubt. Give us assurance. Hold on to us, even when we can't hold on to you. And glorify yourself in our life, I pray in Jesus' name.